In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I once heard someone say that everybody takes the Bible literally. It just depends on which part it is that you take literally. Uh, traditionalists or conservatives have a reputation of reading Paul's letters very literally, but then taking Jesus' teachings and maybe allegorizing them a little bit, making them a bit more figurative. It's not really that hard for rich people to get into heaven. Um, progressives or liberals do the opposite, at least they're accused of it, that Jesus is taken very literally, but Paul, we can kind of fudge a little bit. As Father Martin mentioned a few weeks ago, because Lent starts so late this year, we're getting an extended number of weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is just one of these opportunities where we get to test how committed we are to a plain reading of the text. We're going to start by snagging the last verse from last week's reading, in which Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and Pharisees are, of course, the model of righteous living for a first century Jew. There is no better way to be righteous than how the Pharisees live. And so Jesus might as well be telling us that our faithfulness in prayer should exceed that of Benedictine monks. The bar he has set is that high. Fortunately, or perhaps unfortunately for us, he explains exactly what he means in the next few verses, which we read this morning. He says, you've heard it said you shouldn't murder, and that's swell, but I'm going to tell you that if you're angry with your brother or sister, if you call them a fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. To denigrate or to insult someone else makes you liable for the hell of fire in the same way that murder would. And the same goes for adultery. It's not enough to just not sleep around, because now lusting is just like committing adultery, which is an offense that can get you capital punishment by stoning. And divorce isn't just a legal matter of a certificate, but it is adultery as well. It causes the wife to commit adultery, and we go back to the aforementioned rocks. Jesus says, don't even try to make grandiose oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If your word can't be trusted unless you're swearing by heaven or the throne of God or your mother's grave or the life of your children or the honor of Wrigley Field itself, if you can't be believed without all of this extra flair, then your word can't be believed anyways. What Jesus is saying is that being righteous, acting like God's people, is more than just following technicalities. It's an everyday embodiment of righteousness. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't simply adding some extra requirements to the law. That's the way of the Pharisees, the quote-unquote traditions of men that Jesus would condemn. Jesus is bringing the law into reality. He's saying, this is what it looks like to follow God's intent for not committing murder. It looks like keeping yourself from anger. Keeping your society from adultery means not casting off your wife whenever you feel like it causing her to need to find another husband. It, it means not lusting because that's the problem as much as adultery is. Jesus came not to abolish, but to fulfill the law, to show what the law meant to do to the people of God and for the people of God and for the world around them. Jesus shows us that God's plan for humanity as a way of life rather than a set of hoops to jump through. The law lived out as Jesus taught it, is exactly what it means to be fully human, to embody God's initial design for humankind. But of course, 
neither Israel nor the church live entirely the way God intended. You might not have recognized this morning's reading from Ecclesiasticus, but the concepts there should be very familiar. We hear them in the early church in the Didache, where it spells out there is a way that leads to life and there's a way that leads to death. And the Didache itself echoes what is an alternative reading for this morning in Deuteronomy 30, where Moses stands just before the promised land telling Israel, you have these options, life and death. And he explains the consequences. He says, there's obedience, life and prosperity, and disobedience, death and adversity. Moses is well acquainted with the consequences of disobedience because he's telling Israel about the promised land and won't be able to enter it himself because of his own unfaithfulness. Now, this all sounds very input-output if you look at it a certain way. If you're good, God blesses you. If you're bad, God curses you. In this sort of a reading, God's not a personal being with a volition and a will, but rather a detached cosmic judge who operates by very simple and impersonal set of criteria. Do this, I respond this way. Do that, I respond that way. And that's the danger of reading any particular passage of scripture in isolation. Because this kind of programmatic understanding of God's character puts us in the driver's seat. It reduces God to a machine, a formula, that responds to our actions. We assume we know how God functions, and we can act accordingly. It goes beyond being able to trust in God's promises, and it goes into a place where God is simply an external force that we get to control. He gets very little say in the matter when we look at him this way. But both God and even the law itself are much more complicated than that, thankfully often in our favor. Before we get to Jesus forgiving people and touching the unclean, before we get to Paul pontificating on the depths of grace, the Old Testament itself gives us a picture of a lawgiver who recognizes the difference between the ideal world and reality and then compensates for the difference. You can take, for example, how Deuteronomy talks about the poor. In the 15th chapter, we read about the sabbatical year and the prosperity that would be in the promised land. And in the fourth verse, it reads, There will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. But then just six verses later, we read, You shall give to him, that is the person who asks, freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Is God confused, changing his mind over six verses? No, God would bless the land, and there ought not to have been poor in the land. But that ideal wasn't going to happen. And so God accommodates for reality and commands his people to freely give to the poor. In fact, the sacrificial laws for making restitution in the Old Testament show that God knew ahead of time that his people wouldn't be following his law, and so grace is already built in. Now, Paul will write in his epistles about the law as a guardian that stuck around until Jesus came, but I want to look at another metaphor that helps us understand God's relationship to his people and shed some light on God's law and his commandments. One of the primary biblical metaphors for God and his people is marriage that God took for himself a bride, his people, and that the covenant that the people of God enter into with God when they're traveling between Egypt and Canaan is a marriage union. The beautiful thing about our God is that he doesn't enter into this marriage with his people because they've already followed the law. 
He gives the law to show Israel what it looks like to be faithful in their marriage to him. And this is a gift of the Reformation, understanding that our works don't please God or appease him. They are not the things to entice God to enter into a relationship with us. In this marriage metaphor, the law, God's commandments, are the vows, not the dowry. They're not the down payment on our marriage to God. They are simply instructions that we vow to follow in our relationship with God. God's people were his people, period. God has never been in the business of waiting until we've worked up, worked up enough credit in order to be married to him. And on top of that, he foregoes his right to divorce. He never abandons his people, even in their unfaithfulness. Now, we're called to be faithful, but both scripture and our own lives testify to the fact that we don't fulfill those vows. And the Bible talks about this very colorfully. In the King James Bible, the word whore, or one of its derivatives, shows up 65 times, often used as a pejorative to describe Israel's unfaithfulness. Think about Hosea. And for those of you who aren't, you know, up to date on your minor prophets, shame. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Hosea is called to marry a woman who is going to be unfaithful to him. God tells him, you're going to marry a woman who is going to cheat on you and bear children out of whoredom, as the King James Version says. The NIV says marry a promiscuous woman. I just don't feel like it captures the, the force of what's going on. He marries her and she is predictably unfaithful. It's this metaphor for Israel's own unfaithfulness to God, God knowing that they would be unfaithful, him marrying them anyways. They search after other gods, but in the end, God calls them back. Hosea calls his wife back, buys her back, tells her to be faithful to him, and he pledges himself to be faithful to her. This is our God, the God of grace who never abandons his wife, who forgoes his right to dissolve the union because of her unfaithfulness, who instructs her how to live as a faithful spouse, but then gives grace when we stray. So what do we do with Jesus and Moses doling out the harshness, coming down with these blessings and curses, seemingly setting the bar even higher for the law? Will we allow God's intent for humanity to inform and enliven how we see the world, how it should be and how it can be, and then we lean on grace when we don't live up to it. God has chosen us to be his bride, not because we've earned it or shows, shown ourselves to be faithful, but because he cannot do anything but be faithful. We don't live out our marriage to him like the tax code, where we manipulate loopholes and try and get every last dollar back for us that we can. We live out his commandments because we understand that's what it looks like to be a faithful spouse to God, because we love him, and we know that the way he's shown us isn't a burden, but is actually true freedom, is how we were made to live in the first place. And when we fail, and that's a when, not an if, we remember that our faithlessness is nothing compared to God's faithfulness. We remember that, yes, Jesus told the crowd that their righteousness had to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, that the picture of God's kingdom here on earth meant more righteousness than what the Pharisees were displaying, but then he spends so much time with prostitutes and tax collectors and notorious sinners that he gains the title friend of sinners. He's around drunkards, drunkards so much that everyone accuses him of being an alcoholic. Then he saw the paralyzed man coming through what is likely his own roof. And his response isn't, why have you made a hole in my roof? And it isn't even, you're healed from your paralysis. His first response is, your sins are forgiven. 
When a woman is caught in adultery, he stood in between her and the crowd who was ready to stone her to death, putting himself in harm's way and says, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. When Thomas is so deep in despair that he just can't believe the good news that the Messiah had conquered death, Jesus comes to him, offers him his side, and says, believe. God accommodates. God loves more than we are even willing to receive sometimes. And when God's bride, his people could not be faithful in their marriage vows. God became one of us and went to the cross as the perfectly faithful Israelite, being what we could not be, so that one day we would be presented as the spotless bride of Christ. So hear Jesus' words. Hear the high demands of the Sermon on the Mount. Pray that you might live as a faithful person of God who embodies this full and true humanity that God desires for this world. But when you fail, trust and lean in on the grace that God is more eager to give than we are to receive and is more faithful to our vows that we make at baptism than we could ever be. Thanks be to God. Amen.